From New York, this is Democracy Now! Here's what will be clear by the end of this hearing. President Trump did not fail to act during the 187 minutes between leaving the ellipse and telling the mob to go home. He chose not to act. The House January 6th committee has accused Donald Trump of violating his oath of office by refusing to call off the Capitol insurrection. We'll air excerpts of Thursday's hearing, including dramatic footage revealing Vice President Mike Pence's own security team feared for their lives as Trump supporters attacked the Capitol while threatening to kill Pence. Is that route compromise? We have this insecure. However, we will bypass some protesters that are being contained. There is smoke, unknown what kind of smoke it is. Copy Clear, we're coming out now, all right? Make a way. Plus, we air outtakes of Donald Trump's speech to the nation on January 7th, the day after the insurrection. This election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say... Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? All that and more coming up. The White House has announced President Biden has COVID-19 and will work from isolation. Biden confirmed the news in a short video posted on Twitter Thursday. Hey, folks, guess you heard this morning I tested positive for covid but I've been double vaccinated, double boosted. Symptoms are mild. And, uh, and I really appreciate your inquiries and your concerns. But I'm doing well, getting a lot of work done. Biden said he immediately began taking Paxlovid, the antiviral medication produced by Pfizer that significantly cuts the risk of hospitalization and death in COVID patients. The White House said it's carrying out contact tracing to warn Biden's close contacts they're at risk of COVID-19, but declined to say how many people might be impacted. Over the last week, Biden's traded handshakes with senior Israeli officials in Jerusalem, fist-bumped Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and traveled to Massachusetts to promote clean energy with Senator Warren and John Kerry. Throughout those public appearances and others in recent months, Biden has consistently declined to wear a mask. On Thursday, COVID response coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha defended the White House's safety protocols. We always said that this was a possibility. I think I even said it from this stage that this was a possibility. Um, and uh, I think that that the protocols have, have kept him from getting infected. And, and But we knew that this was a possibility with this incredibly contagious variant. Biden will turn 80 shortly after November's midterm elections. Even in young and fully vaccinated people, COVID-19 can cause long-term effects that are still poorly understood, including neurological and mental health problems, cardiac damage, inflammation and fatigue. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris, second in line to the presidency, plans to maintain her schedule this week, even though she's considered a close contact of Biden's. This all comes amidst another wave of COVID-19 cases driven by the BA5 Omicron variant, with about 3,000 U.S residents dying of the disease each week. The House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack held primetime hearing Thursday night focused on Donald Trump's refusal to take action as his supporters attacked the Capitol. Lawmakers focused on the three-hour period on January 6th after Trump urged his supporters to march to the Capitol and fight like hell. 
He knew many were armed. They also played previously unseen outtakes of a speech Trump delivered on January 7th, when the president repeatedly refused to read prepared lines declaring that the 2020 election was over. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defied the seat of dust—it's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. Okay, I'll, I'll do this. I'm going to do this. Let's go. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? After headlines, we'll spend the rest of the hour airing excerpts from Thursday evening's hearing of the January 6th committee. A government watchdog has opened a criminal investigation into the Secret Service's destruction of text messages sent around the time of the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. In announcing its probe, the Office of the Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security noted the messages were deleted after officials requested them in order to aid the House January 6 Committee's investigation, after the officials requested they be preserved. The House of Representatives has approved a bill that would safeguard the right to contraception under federal law. Just eight Republicans joined Democrats Thursday as lawmakers approved the Right to Contraception Act on a vote of 228 to 195. Ahead of the vote, California Democrat Doris Matsui cited the Supreme Court's ruling in June overturning a half-century of reproductive rights. The Supreme Court's decision was a direct attack on abortion— and Americans are now justifiably scared about the future of birth control. Republicans across this country will continue their extreme assault on basic freedoms. And Justice Thomas made it clear that the Supreme Court will do nothing to protect our fundamental rights from these coordinated attacks. I refuse to sit back and watch as Republicans regress our nation to a place where my granddaughter has fewer rights than her mother or I did. A New York State man has been diagnosed with polio, the first case of the virus in the United States in nearly a decade. The man was not vaccinated against the polio virus. The U.S. was declared polio-free in 1979. But global efforts to combat the disease have failed to entirely stamp out reservoirs of the virus, which can cause paralysis. Turkey's government says negotiators from Moscow and Kyiv have agreed to a deal that would allow Ukraine to safely export millions of tons of grain through besieged ports along the Black Sea. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres traveled to Istanbul on Thursday as news spread of an emerging deal that could help alleviate a global food crisis that's led to soaring costs of staples like flour and cooking oil. The rare victory for diplomacy in Ukraine comes five months after Russia's invasion. In Europe, the death toll from an unprecedented heat wave has topped 2,000, as forecasters warn dangerous levels of heat are spreading east. In Greece, firefighters have responded to nearly 400 wildfires this week, while temperatures in parts of Poland approached 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Here in the United States, forecasters are predicting this week's dangerously hot weather will continue into the weekend, with 85 percent of residents set to experience highs of 90 degrees or hotter. Dramatic new satellite images from NASA show the large reservoir in the U.S., Lake Mead, is at its lowest level since the completion of the Hoover Dam in the 1930s. The reservoir serves about 25 million people. 
In Sri Lanka, Rineo Rikramasinghe has been sworn in as the island nation's new president, filling the gap left by the previous president, who was forced to resign after months of mass protest. Overnight, Sri Lankan soldiers raided the presidential secretariat in the capital, Colombo, where demonstrators have been staging a massive sit-in protest. They also assaulted an adjacent protest encampment in a raid that left at least 10 people badly injured. Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi resigned on Thursday following the collapse of his unity government. He'll remain prime minister in a caretaker role into new national elections scheduled for September 25th. Draghi's resignation was welcomed by Italy's right wing. Recent polls show coalition led by the Italian far right would win a parliamentary majority if the election were held today. The Biden administration's cleared another prisoner for release from the U.S. military prison at Guantanamo Bay. The United States has imprisoned Khaled Hamid Qasim of Yemen at Guantanamo since May of 2002 without charge or trial. The human rights group Reprieve says he was severely tortured, forced to sleep, standing up, subjected to freezing temperatures, left shackled and unable to work for walk for long stretches. The United States continues to imprison 37 people at Guantanamo. Twenty of those remaining have been recommended for transfer. In Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, at least 18 people have been killed in a raid by hundreds of heavily armed police officers on the Alamao favela. Witnesses say masked officers backed by armored vehicles and helicopters sprayed bullets over a wide area for 12 hours Thursday, killing at least one innocent bystander, leaving injured people unattended in the streets. It's the latest in a series of deadly raids in Rio's impoverished communities, which police say are meant to target organized crime groups. Rio's public defender said there were signs of major human rights violations. This is human rights worker Gilberto Santiago López. The police aren't aiding injured people. They aren't. Those injured had to be wheeled in in a hand truck, and then residents had to halt a car to take them to the hospital. The rationale is that they are criminals and they don't deserve the aid they need. People are being dehumanized. Back in the U.S., a federal judge has sentenced former Minneapolis police officer Thomas Lane to 30 months in prison for violating George Floyd's civil rights. In May of 2020, Lane was filmed holding George Floyd's legs as former officer Derek Chauvin pinned his knees to Floyd's neck for over nine minutes, killing him. Lane is set to be sentenced on separate manslaughter charges in a Minnesota court in September. And Senate Democrats have introduced a bill that would end the federal prohibition of cannabis, also known as marijuana. On Thursday, Senators Cory Booker and Ron Wyden introduced the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act. They were joined by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. I am proud to be the first majority leader ever to say that it is time to end the federal prohibition on cannabis. And this bill provides the best framework for updating our cannabis laws and reversing decades of harm inflicted by the war on drugs. The legislation would delist cannabis as a prohibited drug, impose a federal tax on its sale, and would see the criminal records of many nonviolent offenders expunged. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The House Select Committee to Investigate the January 6th attack held a primetime hearing Thursday night focused on Donald Trump's refusal to take action as the supporters attacked the Capitol January 6th. Lawmakers focused on the three-hour period after Trump urged his supporters to march to the Capitol and fight like hell, knowing many of them were armed. 
For the next 187 minutes, Trump refused to take any action to stop the deadly insurrection at the Capitol. We'll spend the hour airing excerpts from Thursday night's hearing. Committee Chair Benny Thompson, who recently tested positive for COVID, opened the hearing by speaking from a remote location in isolation. For the weeks between November election and January 6th, Donald Trump was a force to be reckoned with. He shrugged off the factuality and legality, correct, sober advice of his knowledgeable and sensible advisors. Instead, he recklessly blazed a path of lawlessness and corruption, the cost to which democracy be damned. And then he stopped. For 187 minutes on January 6th, this man of unbridled destructive energy could not be moved, not by his aides, not by his allies, not by the violent chants of rioters or the desperate pleas of those facing down the riot. Republican Congress member Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the January 6th committee, accused Donald Trump of refusing to defend the Constitution. Donald Trump's own White House counsel, his own White House staff, members of his own family, all implored him to immediately intervene to condemn the violence and instruct his supporters to stand down, leave the Capitol, and disperse. For multiple hours, he would not. Donald Trump would not get on the phone and order the military or law enforcement agencies to help. And for hours, Donald Trump chose not to answer the pleas from Congress, from his own party, and from all across our nation to do what his oath required. He refused to defend our nation and our Constitution. He refused to do what every American president must. Thursday night's hearing was led by Republican Congressmember Adam Kinzinger and Democrat Elaine Luria, who outlined Trump's actions once he returned to the White House January 6th after the Secret Service refused to take him to the Capitol, sparking what she described an angry exchange in the presidential SUV. This following clip includes pre-recorded depositions of former White House counsel Pat Cipollone, Mike Pence's national security advisor, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, and former Trump assistant, Nicholas Luna. This is Congressmember Elaine Luria. What you see on the screen is a photo of him inside the Oval Office immediately after he returned from the rally, still wearing his overcoat. A White House employee informed the president as soon as he returned to the Oval about the riot at the Capitol. Let me repeat that. Within 15 minutes of leaving the stage, President Trump knew that the Capitol was besieged and under attack. At 1.25, President Trump went to the private dining room off the Oval Office. From 1.25 until 4 o'clock, the President stayed in his dining room. Just to give you a sense of where the dining room is situated in the West Wing, let's take a look at this floor plan. The dining room is connected to the Oval Office by a short hallway. Witnesses told us that on January 6th, President Trump sat in his usual spot at the head of the table facing a television hanging on the wall. We know from the employee that the TV was tuned to Fox News all afternoon. Here you can see Fox News on the TV showing coverage of the joint session that was airing that day at 1.25. Other witnesses confirmed that President Trump was in the dining room with the TV on for more than two and a half hours. 
There was no official record of what President Trump did while in the dining room. On the screen is the presidential call log from January 6th. As you can see, there's no official record of President Trump receiving or placing a call between 11.06 and 6.54 p.m. As to what the president was doing that afternoon, the presidential daily diary is also silent. It contains no information from the period between 1.21 p.m. and 4.03 p.m. There are also no photos of President Trump during this critical period between 1.21 in the Oval Office and when he went outside to the Rose Garden after 4 o'clock. The chief White House photographer wanted to take pictures because it was, in her words, very important for his archives and for history. But she was told, quote, no photographs. Despite the lack of photos or an official record, we've learned what President Trump was doing while he was watching TV in the dining room. But before we get into that, it's important to understand what he never did that day. Let's watch. So are you aware of any phone call by the president of the United States to the secretary of defense that day? That's a baloney. Not that I'm aware of, no. Are you aware of any phone call by the president of the United States to the attorney general of the United States that day? No. Are you aware of any phone call by the president of the United States to the secretary of Homeland Security that day? I, I'm not aware of that, no. Did you ever hear the vice president, or excuse me, the president no. ask for the National no. Guard? Did you ever hear the president ask for law enforcement response? No. That's Lieutenant General. So as somebody who works in the national security space and with the National Security Council, if, if there were going to be troops present or called up for a rally in Washington, D.C., for example, is that something that you would have been aware of? Yeah, I would have. Do you know if you asked anybody to reach out to any of those that we just listed off, National Guard, DOD, FBI, Homeland Security, Secret Service, Mayor Bowser of the Capitol Police about the situation in the Capitol. I am not aware of any of those requests. That's Trump assistant Nicholas Luna. No, sir. We have confirmed in numerous interviews with senior law enforcement and military leaders, Vice President Pence's staff and D.C. government officials, none of them, not one, heard from President Trump that day. He did not call to issue orders. He did not call to offer assistance. This week, we received additional testimony from yet another witness about why the president didn't make any efforts to quell the attack. The former White House employee with national security responsibilities told us about a conversation with senior advisor Eric Hirschman and Pat Cipollone, the top White House lawyer. This conversation was about a pending call from the Pentagon seeking to coordinate on the response to the attack. Mr. Hirschman turned to Mr. Cipollone and said, the president didn't want to do anything. And so Mr. Cipollone had to take the call himself. So if President Trump wasn't calling law enforcement or military leaders, what did President Trump spend his time doing that afternoon while he first settled into the dining room? He was calling senators to encourage them to delay or object to the certification. Here's Kaylee McEnany, his press secretary, to explain. Yeah. All right, then it says back there, and he wants list of senators. And then he's calling them one by one. Do you know which ones he called? To the best of my recollection, no. Um, 
as I say in my notes, he wanted a list of the senators. And, you know, I left him um, at, at that point. That's former White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany in a pre-recorded deposition. We'll air more from the January 6th House committee after break, including the outtakes of Trump's speech the day after January 6th. Stay with us. Stereo and Simon Mejia. Visit democracynow.org, where we'll be posting our new interview with Simone Mejia in both Spanish and English. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're continuing our coverage of Thursday's hearing of the U.S. Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. The hearing featured two White House aides who quit January 6th, former Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger, as well as former White House Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews. This is committee member Democrat Elaine Luria. Although President Trump was aware of the ongoing riot, he did not take any immediate action to address the lawlessness. Instead, at 2.03, he called Rudy Giuliani again, and that call lasted for over eight minutes. Moments later, at 2.13, rioters broke into the Capitol itself. One of the Proud Boys charged with seditious conspiracy Dominic Pozzola used an officer's shields to smash a window, and rioters flooded into the building. As rioters were entering the building, the Secret Service held Vice President Pence in his office right off the Senate chamber for 13 minutes as they worked to clear a safe path to a secure location. Now listen to some of that radio traffic and see what they were seeing as the protesters got just feet away from where the Vice President was holding. If we're moving, we need to move now. Copy. If we lose uh, any more time, we may have we may lose the ability to to leave. So if we're going to leave, we need to do it now. They gained access to the second floor, and I've got public about five feet from me down here below. Okay, copy. They are on the second floor, moving in now. We may want to consider getting out and leaving now. Copy. Will we encounter the people once we make our way? Repeat. Counter any individuals if we made our way to the to the. There's six 
officers between us and the people that are five to ten feet away from me. Yeah, I'm going down to evaluate. Go ahead. We have a clear shot if we move quickly. We got smoke downstairs set by unknown smoke set downstairs by the protesters. Is, is that route compromised? We have this insecure. However, we will bypass some protesters that are being contained. There is smoke unknown. What kind of smoke it is? Copy. Clear. We're coming out now. All right. Make a way. The president's National Security Council staff was listening to these developments and tracking them in real time. On the screen, you can see excerpts from the chat logs among the, national, among the President's national, Council, national Security Council staff. At 2.13, the staff learned that the rioters were kicking in the windows at the Capitol. Three minutes later, the staff said the Vice President was being pulled, which meant agents evacuated him from the Senate floor. At 2.24, the staff noted that the Secret Service agents at the Capitol did not, quote, sound good right now. Earlier, you heard from a security professional who had been working in the White House complex on January 6, with access to relevant information and a responsibility to report to national security officials. We asked this person, what was meant by the comment that the Secret Service agents did not, quote, sound good right now? In the following clip of that testimony, which has been modified to protect the individual's identity, the professional discusses what they heard from listening to the incoming radio traffic that day. Okay, that last entry in the page of service, the capital does not sound good right now. Correct. What does that mean? Uh, the members of the BPT tell at this time were starting to fear for their own lives. Um, there were a lot of, there was a lot of yelling, um, a lot of, A lot of very personal calls um, over the radio, so uh, it was disturbing. I don't like talking about it, but um, uh, there were calls to uh, say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth. It was getting, for, for whatever the reason was on the ground, the BP detail thought that this was about to get very ugly. And do you, did you hear that over the radio? What was the response by the agents who, Secret Service agents who were there? Everybody kept saying, you know, at that point it was just reassurances or um, I think there were discussions of reinforcements coming, but again, it was just chaos. They were just yelling. They obviously conveyed this so disturbing, but what, what prompted you to put it into an entry? as it states their service to the county. They're running out of options, and they're getting nervous. It, it, it sounds like we're, that we came very close to either service having to use legal options or or worse. Like I, I, at that point, I don't know. Is the VP compromised? Is the detail kind of like, I, I don't know. Like, we didn't have visibility, but it doesn't. If they're screaming and, and saying things like say goodbye to the family, like the floor needs to know this is going to a whole other level soon. As this next video shows, the rioters' anger was fo focused primarily on Vice President Mike Pence. This woman comes up to the side of us and she says, Pence folded. So 
it was kind of like, okay, well, in my mind, I was thinking, well, that's it, you know. Well, my son-in-law looks at me and he says, I want to go in. What percentage of the crowd is going to the Capitol? 100%. It is... It has spread like wildfire that Pence has betrayed us and everybody's marching on the Capitol, all million of us. It's insane. appear angry as you were walking to the Capitol? Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people seem like they're very upset. Tell us some of the things they were saying, if you recall. Oh, there was, they were saying all, ty- you know, people were screaming all types of stuff. Um, they were mad that uh, uh, Vice President Pence was going to accept the electorals. I mean, it was, I mean, it was a little, you could, if you could think it up, that's, you were hearing it. I believe that uh, Vice President Pence was going to certify the electoral votes and or not certify them. But I guess that's just changed. Correct. And uh, it's a very big disappointment. I think there's several hundred thousand people here that are very disappointed. President Trump did not try to calm his thousands of disappointed supporters. Instead, At almost the same moment, violence was getting completely out of hand. Donald Trump sent his 224 tweet. The president said, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution. Despite knowing the Capitol had been breached and the mob was in the building, President Trump called Mike Pence a coward and placed all the blame on him for not stopping the certification. He put a target on his own vice president's back. Mr. Pottinger and Ms. Matthews, when we ask you about your reaction to seeing the 224 tweet in real time, you both use the same imagery to describe it. President Trump was adding fuel to the fire. Mr. Pottinger, you made the decision to resign after seeing this tweet. Can you please tell us why? Yes. So that was... um, Pretty soon after I, or shortly before I'd gotten back to the White House, I'd come from off-site. Uh, I began to see for the first time those images on TV of the chaos that was uh, unfolding at the Capitol. One of my aides uh, handed me a sheet of paper that uh, contained the tweet that you just uh, read. Uh, I, I read it and uh, was uh, quite disturbed by it. Uh, I, I was disturbed and worried to see that the president was attacking uh, Vice President Pence for doing his constitutional duty. So the tweet looked to me like the opposite of what, what we really needed at that moment, which was a de-escalation. Uh, and uh, that's why I, I had said earlier that it looked like fuel being poured on the fire. So that was the moment that I decided uh, that I was going to resign, that that would be my, my last day at the White House. Uh, I, I simply didn't want to be associated with, uh, uh, with the events that were unfolding on the Capitol. Thank you. And Ms. Matthews, what was your reaction to the president's tweet about Vice President Pence? 
So it was obvious that the situation at the Capitol was violent and escalating quickly. And so I thought that the tweet about the vice president was the last thing that was needed in that moment. And I, I remember thinking that um, this was going to be bad for him to tweet this because it was essentially him giving the green light to these uh, people, telling them that what they were doing at the steps of the Capitol and entering the Capitol was okay, that they were justified in their anger. And he shouldn't have been doing that. He should have been telling these people to go home and to leave and to condemn the violence that we were seeing. And I'm someone who has worked with him. You know, I worked on the campaign, traveled all around the country, going to countless rallies with him. And I've seen the impact that his words have on his supporters. He, they truly latch on to every word and every tweet that he says. And so I think that in that moment, for him to tweet out the message about Mike Pence, it was him pouring gasoline on the fire and making it much worse. As you will see, at 2.26, the vice president had to be evacuated to safety a second time and came within 40 feet of the rioters. The attack escalated quickly right after the tweet. During this chaos, what did President Trump do at that point? He went back to calling senators to try to further delay the electoral count. While the vice president was being evacuated from the Senate, President Trump called Senator Tommy Tuberville, one of his strongest supporters in the Senate. As Senator Tuberville later recalled, he had to end the call so that he could evacuate the Senate chamber himself. Let's listen. He called, didn't call my phone, called somebody else, and uh, they handed it to me. And I, I basically told him, I said, Mr. President, we're, we're not doing much work here right now because they just took our vice president out. And matter of fact, I'm going to have to hang up on you. Uh, I've got to leave. Senator Josh Hawley also had to flee. Earlier that afternoon, before the joint session started, he walked across the east front of the Capitol. As you can see in this photo, he raised his fist in solidarity with the protesters already amassing at the security gates. We spoke with a Capitol Police officer who was out there at the time. She told us that Senator, Senator Hawley's gesture riled up the crowd, and it bothered her greatly because he was doing it in a safe space, protected by the officers and the barriers. Later that day, Senator Hawley fled after those protesters he helped to rile up stormed the Capitol. See for yourself. They're showing the image of Josh Hawley racing through the hallways of the Capitol. Think about what we've seen undeniable violence at the Capitol, the vice president being evacuated to safety by the Secret Service, senators running through the hallways of the Senate to get away from the mob. As the commander-in-chief, President Trump was oath and duty-bound to protect the Capitol, 
His senior staff understood that. Do you, do you believe, Jared, that the president has an obligation to uh, ensure a peaceful transfer of power? Um, yes. And do you think the president has an obligation to defend uh, all three branches of our government? Uh, I believe so. Jared, and, and I assume you also would agree the president has a particular obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That is one of the president's obligations, correct? No, I mean, I ask what his duty is. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a constitutional duty. I, what he has, he's the commander-in-chief. And that was, the, that was my biggest issue with him as national security advisor. Rather than uphold his duty to the Constitution, President Trump allowed the mob to achieve the delay that he hoped would keep him in power. That was Democrat Elaine Lurie of the January 6th House Committee. And before her was testimony from Mike Pence's national security advisor, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, and White House counsel Pat Cipollone, after Jared Kushner. During Thursday's hearing, Republican committee member Adam Kinzinger detailed how President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, received numerous text messages on the afternoon of January 6th from people urging Trump to stop the attack on the Capitol. Throughout the attack, Mr. Meadows received texts from Republican members of Congress, from current and former Trump administration officials, from media personalities, and from friends. Like President Trump's staff, they knew President Trump had to speak publicly to get the mob to stop. Let's look at just a few of these text messages. Fox News personality Laura Ingram said, the president needs to tell the people in the Capitol to go home. Former Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney urged Mark, he needs to stop this now. Fox News personality Brian Kilmeade said, please get him on TV, destroying everything that you guys have accomplished. When we interviewed White House counsel Pat Cipollone, he told us that he knew the president's two tweets were not enough. Let's listen to what he said. I think the question is, did you believe that the tweets were not anything about your advice to the president? No, I believe more needed to be done. Okay. I believed that a public statement needed to be made. When you talk about uh, others on the staff thinking more should be done or thinking that the president needed to tell people to go home, who, who would you put in that category? Well, I, I would put uh, Pat Philbin, Eric Hirschman, um, overall Mark Meadows, um, Ivanka, once Jared got there, Jared, um, General Kellogg. I'm probably missing some, but those are... Kaylee, I think, was was there, but I don't. Dan Scavino. And who on the staff did not want people to leave the Capitol? On the staff? In the White House, how about? I, 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 I can't think of anybody, you know, 
on that day who didn't want people to get out of the the Capitol once the you know particularly once the violence started. No, I mean. What about the president? Yeah. <laughs> she said the staff. So I answered. No, I said in the White House. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I thought you said who else on the staff. Um, I, I, I'm, I can't reveal communications, but obviously I think, you know, Let's pause on that last statement. Although Pat Cipollone is being careful about executive privilege, there really is no ambiguity about what he said. Almost everybody wanted President Trump to instruct the mob to disperse. President Trump refused. January 6th, committee member Republican Adam Kinzinger. Stay tuned for outtakes of Donald Trump's January 7th speech. by REM here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue our coverage of Thursday night's hearing of the U.S. House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, this is committee member, Virginia Democrat, Elaine Luria. President Trump finally relented to the pleas from his staff, his family, and from Capitol Hill for him to do Something more at 4.17, 187 minutes, more than three hours after he stopped speaking at the Ellipse, after he stopped speaking to a mob that he had sent armed to the Capitol. That's when he tweeted a video telling the rioters to go home, while also telling him them that they were special and that he loved them. By that time, although, the violence was far from over. Law enforcement had started to turn the tide, reinforcements were on the way, and elected officials were in secure locations. The writing was already on the wall. The rioters would not succeed. Here's what was showing on Fox News, the channel the president was watching all afternoon. Back to Brett Baer with more information now. Brett, what do you have? 
Our Pentagon team, Jen Griffin, Lucas Tomlinson, uh, confirming the Defense Department has now uh, mobilized the entire D.C. National Guard, 1,800 troops, take several hours, as I was mentioning before, uh, to get them up and running. The Army Secretary, Ryan McCarthy, is setting up a headquarters at the FBI. You just heard from David Spunt that the FBI is also sending uh, troops to the Capitol. It's no coincidence, then, that President Trump finally gave in and went out to the Rose Garden at 4.03. His staff had prepared a script for him to read, but he refused to use it. As you can see on the screen, you can see the script is stamped President has seen. The script said, quote, I'm asking you to leave the capital region now and go home in a peaceful way. The President was urged to stick to this script, but he spoke off the cuff. Eric Hirschman and Nick Luna went with the president to film the message in the Rose Garden. Let's hear what they had to say and see the never-before-seen raw footage of the president recording this video message. Ultimately, these remarks that we're looking at here in Exhibit 25 were not the remarks that the president delivered in the Rose Garden. Do you know why the president decided not to use these? I don't know, sir. No, I, don't, I do not know why. Did the president use any written remarks to your knowledge, or did he just go off the cuff? Uh, to my knowledge, it was off the cuff, sir. Good chase. Yep. When you're ready, sir. Yep. You tell me when. When you're ready, sir. Who's, who's behind me? He's gone. He's gone around. We're all clear now. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had a election. Let me say. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. But we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. When I got there, uh, basically the president just had finished uh, filming the video. And I think he was basically retiring for the day. Was there any discussion about the president releasing a second video? That day? Not that I recall. When, the, when he finished his video, I think everyone was like, day's over. People were pretty drained. Were pretty what? Drained. Uh, when we say day, day over, there were still people in the Capitol at that point, weren't there? No, there were people in the Capitol, but I believe by this stage, you know, law enforcement... I'd have to go back and look, but I believe law enforcement was 
either there or moving in or going to take charge. I, I just tell you, people were emotionally drained by the time that videotape was done. Emotionally drained at the White House? Here's what was happening at the same time at the Capitol. We warned the audience that this clip also contains strong language and violence. Everybody, we need gas masks. We need weapons. We need strong, angry patriots to help our boys. They don't want to leave. The president's words matter. We know that many of the rioters were listening to President Trump. We heard from one last week, Stephen Ayers. Let's listen to what he had to say about the 417 message from the president and see how rioters reacted to the president's message in real time. Well, when we were there, as soon as that come out, everybody started talking about it. And that's, it seemed like it started to disperse, you know, some of the crowd. I'm here delivering the president's message. But just as Mr. Ayers said, police were still fending off the last throes of the brutal assault. That was Democratic Congressmember Lane Lurie of the January 6th House Committee. She led Thursday's hearing with Republican Congressmember Adam Kinzinger. While everyone else was working <clears throat> to get Congress back in session, what did President Trump do? At 6.01, just one minute after the citywide curfew went into effect, he posted his last tweet of the day. After officers engaged in multiple hours of hand-to-hand -hand combat, with over 100 of them sustaining injuries, President Trump tweeted at 6.01 and justified the violence as a natural response to the election. He said, quote, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide victory is so unceremoniously, viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly, unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and peace. Remember this day forever. He called the mob great patriots. He told people to remember the day forever. He showed absolutely no remorse. A few minutes later, at 627, the president left the dining room and he went up to the White House residence for the night. On the screen is the last photograph of the president that night as he went into the residence. As he was gathering his things in the dining room to leave, President Trump reflected on the day's events with a White House employee. This was the same employee who had met President Trump in the Oval Office after he returned from the Ellipse. President Trump said nothing to the employee about the attack. He said only, quote, 
Mike Pence let me down. That was Republican Congressmember Adam Kinzinger of the House January 6th Committee. This is Democrat Committee member Elaine Luria. The staff who remained at the White House on the morning of January 7th knew the president needed to address the nation again. And they had a speech prepared for him that morning. But he refused for hours to give it. As you heard Cassidy Hushin testify previously, President Trump finally agreed to record an address to the nation later that evening, the evening of January 7th, because of concerns he might be removed from power under the 25th Amendment or by impeachment. We know these threats were real. Sean Hannity said so himself in a text message that day to Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany. He wrote, no more stolen election talk. Yes, impeachment and 25th Amendment are real. We obtained the never-before-seen raw footage of the president recording his address to the nation that day on January 7th, more than 24 hours after the last time he had addressed the nation from the Rose Garden. Let's take a look. Whenever you're ready, sir. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defied the seat of dust. It's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. Okay, I'll, I'll do this. I'm going to do this. Let's go. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over. Okay? But Congress is certified. Now Congress is Yeah, right. Now Congress is I didn't say over. So let, let me see. Don't go to the paragraph before. Okay? I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Yesterday is a hard word for me. Just take that. The heinous the attack. Ah, uh, good. Take the word yesterday, because it doesn't work with the heinous attack on our country. Say on our country. Want to say that? No, no, no. My only goal was to ensure the integrity of the vote. My only goal was to ensure the integrity of the vote. On January 7th, one day after he incited an insurrection based on a lie, President Trump still could not say that the election was over. That was Democratic Congressmember Elaine Luria of the January 6th House Committee. Republican Congressmember Liz Cheney, vice chair of the committee, gave closing remarks. At one point in 2016, when he was first running for office, Donald Trump said this. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters. That quote came to mind last week when audio from Trump advisor Steve Bannon surfaced from October 31st, 2020, just a few days before the presidential election. Let's listen. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. 
but that doesn't mean he's a winner. He's just going to say he's a winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs voted male. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. Also, if Trump is if Trump is losing by ten or eleven o'clock at night, it's going to be even crazier. No, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. If Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy shit. And of course, four days later, President Trump declared victory when his own campaign advisors told him he had absolutely no basis to do so. What the new Steve Bannon audio demonstrates is that Donald Trump's plan to falsely claim victory in 2020, no matter what the facts actually were, was premeditated. Perhaps worse, Donald Trump believed he could convince his voters to buy it, whether he had any actual evidence of fraud or not. And this same thing continued to occur from Election Day onward until January 6th. Donald Trump was confident that he could convince his supporters the election was stolen, no matter how many lawsuits he lost, and he lost scores of them. He was told over and over again, in immense detail, that the election was not stolen. There was no evidence of widespread fraud. It didn't matter. Donald Trump was confident he could persuade his supporters to believe whatever he said, no matter how outlandish, and ultimately, that they could be summoned to Washington to help him remain president for another term. From Vice Chair Liz Cheney to Benny Thompson, chair of the January 6th House Committee. There can be no doubt that there was a coordinated, multi-step effort to overturn an election overseen and directed by Donald Trump. There can be no doubt that he commanded a mob, a mob he knew was heavily armed, violent and angry, to march on the Capitol to try to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And he made targets out of his own vice president and the lawmakers gathered to do the people's work. These facts have gone undisputed. And so there needs to be accountability, accountability under the law, accountability to the American people accountability at every level from the local precincts in many states where Donald Trump and his allies attacked election workers for just doing their jobs, all the way up to the Oval Office where Donald Trump embraced a legal advice of insurrectionists that a federal judge has already said was a coup in search of a legal theory. Our democracy withstood the attack on January 6th. If there is no accountability for January 6th for every part of this scheme, I fear that we will not overcome the ongoing threat to our democracy. There must be stiff consequences for those responsible. That's House January 6th Committee Chair Benny Thompson speaking from isolation as he's tested positive for COVID-19. To see all eight of the committee's hearings in full, go to democracynow.org. That does it for our show, Democracy Now!, produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Messiah Rhodes, Nareen Shea. I'm Amy Goodman. Wear a mask. Stay safe.